It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Mayor Giuliani defeated Democratic Mayor David Dinkins this past November in a closely contested race. We now take you to the steps of City Hall in New York City for the inaugural activities. I, Rudolph William Giuliani. I, Rudolph William Giuliani. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. It's January 2nd, 1994. Rudy Giuliani has defeated David Dinkins and is being sworn in as New York City's newest mayor. And he's bringing in a new police commissioner to replace Ray Kelly, the former police commissioner of Boston, William Bratton. Here's Bratton. I was very cognizant that I was inheriting a mess. A mess in terms of the public and media perception that the department was failing in its efforts to deal with crime and disorder. And that it was also failing once again in its obligation for gaining public trust through integrity. It was a mess in so many ways. Crime, disorder, corruption. And at this time, the NYPD was clearly not being well run. As Bill Bratton transitions into the city's newest top cop, Frank O'Hara wants to make sure that Bratton hears what's going on inside the 30th Precinct, firsthand, and where the Mullen Commission's investigation is. So he sets up a meeting at a restaurant on 3rd Avenue. I met him at PJ Clark's on a Saturday night, where I laid out what they were walking into. I felt that he wasn't getting the information from the Kelly administration. And I felt, you know, you walking into a bear trap, a big one. I mean, this is not just a couple of cops like Dowd. This is a whole precinct. In addition to learning about the 3-0, Bratton finds out about the turf war going on behind the scenes between the Manhattan DA, Robert Morgenthau, and the Mullen Commission, who are working with the feds and that both groups have separate investigations going on, each with their own cooperators wearing wires inside the 30th Precinct. There was a great deal of secrecy because none of the entities involved trusted the other entities. You had Judge Mullen's investigation, working at Mary Jo White's office, the federal people. You had the district attorney, Bob Morgenthau, the leading DA in the country with his phenomenal reputation. You had uh, these 
lions, if you will, with the reputations they had. And they were running supposedly collaborative investigations. They were parallel, but uh, it's like, think of uh, a railroad track. Uh, and think of the old Lionel railroad track that had three rails. You had the feds, you had Marlin, and you had Morgenthau, but there were no ties between the rails. Morgenthau at that time, there was probably a degree of embarrassment that here he is in his area of Manhattan, that this had been going on, but it took the Marlin Commission, it took the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District to uncover it. So he's, he's coming to the parade a little late, and now he's going to be rushing to try and catch up. To complicate things even further for Commissioner Bratton, he feels that he's being kept in the dark by the NYPD's head of internal affairs, Deputy Commissioner Walter Mack, who was hired the prior year by Bratton's predecessor, Ray Kelly. I did not have a good relationship with Mack. I came to not trust that he was keeping me informed of the various stages and status of the investigation. The idea of the secrecy, of not sharing information, of, of the need to know. And unfortunately, uh, I sense my perspective, my belief was he felt that I, as the new commissioner, did not need to know. Walter Mack. There was a constant obligation that we felt in order to keep the undercover situation going and gathering all the information necessary that we had to keep secret within the department. Mack knows that leaks had been a major problem with internal affairs in the past. And he's not about to do anything to jeopardize the 3-0 investigation, like revealing the identity of Officer Otto, or the 3-0 cops who'd been flipped, George Nova, Alberto Vargas, and the DA's informant, George Alvarez. He needs to keep that information among a very select few who are actively working the case. And that doesn't include Bill Bratton, the police commissioner. I refuse at the time to disclose who was cooperating and what was going on. And we had some of these, I'm the commissioner, you work for me, you will tell me this kind of conversations, which did not go well. I certainly, as commissioner, felt I needed to know. And I was getting more information from outside the department than I was getting from my own head of internal affairs. Despite his issues with Walter Mack, Commissioner Bratton sees the big picture. There are two active but separate corruption investigations inside one precinct, and a power struggle for which agency will take the lead. Bratton had once been in charge of the New York City Transit Police, and he knows that the three separate train rails can't stay parallel forever. These three rails, at some point in time, come to a switch. To some extent, You've got George Nova versus Officer Alvarez. The gun's gone off, the gates have opened, and now we're off to the races. You want to work with these duplicitous fucks? That's up to you. We choose not to. <laughs> You're talking about 30 years later, these people are just incredibly childish. You can't come up with a more outrageous situation of a uniformed police officer trying to rip off a drug dealer who resists, and then he gets shot. It was unbelievable. The fucked up world and a fucked up department. I'm Zach Levitt, 
and this is The Set. Episode 8, The Takedown. Harlem really was like the voice for Black America when I came. It was a place of opportunity, a place of challenge, and I saw a future here. And I married in that same year and began my family here. And uh, it was really a dream place to be, was a dream place to be. Inside the 30th Precinct, which covers less than one square mile, there are more than 20 churches. Church leaders are the eyes and ears of the neighborhood. Reverend Dr. John L. Scott is one of them. Scott's a civil rights leader and has been the pastor at St. John's Baptist Church on West 152nd Street for 50 years. Well, it was a very stable community, but then the crack cocaine epidemic hit just like a storm. It was like being almost in a war zone. The pushers was everywhere, man. I mean, really, it was almost dangerous to be out walking the street alone. You were putting your life at risk. When the people would come home from work, they couldn't even get through their own lobbies. They'd have to ask the, the pushers permission. Reverend Earl Cooper Camp was the pastor at the Church of the Intercession on West 155th Street. This was life or death for them. Many of our uh, members felt like prisoners in their own apartments and also, quite frankly, you know, just ignored by the city. The, the police department, which was supposed to you know, uh, stop that sort of thing, just wasn't doing a thing. And even worse, felt like they could not trust the cops at all. There was a rampant feeling in the neighborhood that somehow the cops were in cahoots with this. People didn't always know specifically how, but just did not trust NYPD. Thomas Fenlin was the pastor at Our Lady of Lourdes on West 142nd Street. He remembers visiting one of his parishioners, who told him that she lived next door to a drug dealer. And his father Fenlin arrived. Two 30th Precinct officers walked out of the dealer's apartment. She just said to me, oh, the cops just got paid off. Just took it for granted. So that's how I became aware of it. And uh, I didn't trust the local precinct would do something. I felt call of God that if nobody would protect us, what good is a priest or a rabbi or a preacher if he does not call his fellow clergy person together to protect the community. And I said, this is holy ground to us. This is where we are raising our children. This is where our children go to school. Nothing is more sacred than where we work, where we labor, where we live. It was just incumbent upon us to take some pretty extraordinary action to make sure that public safety, public order, and just some sort of quality of life, at least, could be something for uh, for the people in our neighborhood. The pastors take things into their own hands. They helped to form a coalition from 10 different churches, which they called HIT, Harlem Initiatives, together. And they decide to do something as dangerous as it is extraordinary. 
It's early February 1994, and Lent is coming up, which means that many people will decide to give something up as a form of sacrifice. The hit pastors ask their parishioners to give up the drug dealers. We said, look, every Sunday we pass the collection plates. And so for uh, a few Sundays, what we're going to do is we're going to pass the collection plate. And if you know of specific activity, just drop that in the collection plate. Drop in the offering plate the names of the spots that the drugs were being distributed. We'll make this our project for Lent. We'll give all the people a whole of Lent to report where our drug dealers located in what buildings and uh, just throw it in the collection. We'll not only report it, we're going to take this, uh, you know, to the very top of the department. You know, the more specific information, the better that will be for us. Plate comes by, just drop in a note. Nobody's going to know that it's there. And uh, out of that, then, we put together a list, about three legal pages. There's about 190 different reports. Lumped in with the names of drug dealers are also names of police officers in the 3-0. And some of the information was incredibly specific. I remember one, uh, it said, every Wednesday evening at the bodega at 138th and Broadway, Officer Benitez comes and picks up a paper bag with $1,000 in it. You can't get more specific than that. Uh, you know, that's how literally people knew, uh, you know, to that level of detail, uh, what was happening in the neighborhood. You hear uh, about uh, police corruption. Oh, it's just a few bad apples. This wasn't a few bad apples. This was half the bushel. The hit pastors hand deliver their list to the NYPD's new commissioner. And uh, Bratton, uh, I'll never forget, uh, you know, he looked over that list and, uh, you know, especially when he got to that one about the officer would pick up his uh, little packet of money uh, every Wednesday night. Look at that, he says, damn, this is better information than I'm getting from IAD. That's the, the Internal Affairs Department. He says, something's going to happen with this. I can't tell you, but we're working on this and we're going to make a change. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi! 
Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Once we saw what these guys were actually doing and corroborated it, then it was like, oh, that's it. We're not stopping until we get to the bottom of, of all of this. Everyone who's involved in these things, man, they were doing some crazy stuff. If you didn't see it with your own eyes, you, you'd say no way. Just n- never happened. Never happened. Lieutenant Dominic Zarella is one of the hand-picked internal affairs investigators chosen to work the 3-0 case with the Mullen Commission and the Feds in the Southern District. Zarella's the one who made Alberto Vargas change his mind about cooperating when he told him he better hope his drug money didn't pay for his parents' house. Now, he's focused on building evidence against Alfonso Abusador Comprez. Comprez is the cop who shot a drug dealer in a building lobby on 141st Street. And we go out and we bring the drug dealer in. And sure as hell, he had a hole in his ass from where Compros had shot him. And, you know, for evidentiary purposes, we, we took a picture of the, the bullet wound and, you know, the hole and, you know, with the ruler and whatever. So, you know, yeah, that story was corroborated. Zarella also gets tipped off that Compres is receiving payments from drug dealers right next to the station house. We knew Compres was picking up his money from a beauty salon directly across the street from the 3 precinct. And the beauty salon had glass windows. So you could see him going in, you could see him hanging out, but you're on the block of the 3 the precinct itself. You can't be standing there with a video camera. It's the dead of winter. There's nobody on the street anyway, right? So uh, we were like, how are we gonna get this on film? So we put our heads together and we got a pickup truck with a cap on it. And we found an empty refrigerator box. He always picked up on a Saturday evening. And we waited and we waited and we waited until the spot right in front of the beauty salon opened up. We parked the pickup truck with the refrigerator box in the back. And we had an investigator inside the refrigerator box. We gave him a video camera, a blanket to keep warm, and a bottle to pee in. The first time we went out, the batteries died. So now we go get like two big car batteries and we hook these things up to two big car batteries. And he's back in the box again and and freezing his nuts off trying to get this guy. And um, we got him, we got him on video. Um, picking up the money right from the salon. Zarella comes from a family of cops. He hates investigating fellow police officers. But this case is different. At the end of the day, these guys were not cops. They were not cops. That's what really made this whole thing, like, much easier for me, that they're not cops. 
Who's stealing cocaine by the by the kilos? Who's shooting a drug dealer in the ass? Who's picking up money from this place? Who's picking up money from that place? Who's booming doors over here? It was like the wild, wild west. And I was like, you know what? These guys, they're just not cops. With Nova and Vargas now wearing wires for the Mullen Commission and the feds, the case is starting to move quickly. I mean, it was crazy. We were running around like chickens without heads. <laughs> meeting this guy here, meeting that guy there, dropping this recorder off here, bringing this recorder off the back to get it downloaded. You know, it was crazy. And then one day, you know, we had Nova and Vargas at the urinal, taking a piss, talking to each other. They both were wearing wires. <laughs> Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Horowitz. With Vargas and Nova, we met them every day. In the morning, when they went, were going to work, and then the evening when they came off duty. Someone had to do that. We had to wire them up in the morning and get the wire from them at the end of the day. And then we had a whole team because we needed people to listen to recordings every day, eight hours of recordings, roughly every day, because we had police officers out there who were working for us who we knew were corrupt, but we knew we had to have the help from them in order to arrest all these other cops who were corrupt. Marsha De Leon is one of Franco Harris' Mullen Commission investigators. De Leon meets with George Nova every day to wire him up, exchange his transmitter, debrief him, and then listen to and transcribe the audio. I met with Nova constantly. Nova was always kind of quiet, at least towards me, and, and I was the one from the Mullen Commission that met with him the most. Never disrespectful. Just kind of quiet. You kind of had to pull words out of him. De Leon doesn't miss a day of work in two years, including her wedding day. I went to debrief him in rollers. And I was getting married that that day, you know, later on in the day, but I was getting married. But I, I knew I was not going to take the day off. I'm like, hey, I got a job to do and I'm going to do it. And it's my wedding day. And I think that was the only time when we had a conversation other than what he had to do, what he did, what happened, what we needed from him. Because his face was in shock when I walked in with my rollers. He looked at me like, what the fuck is going on with this girl? De Leon has been doing this routine now with Nova and slogging through the audio from his wire for five straight months. Tedious. God, I just, I just think about it. It was hell. Hell. Because most of the time, he would move, the music would turn on, especially during the time when you think like, oh, wait, this conversation is going to start. This is what we wanted. And then you hear the radio turn on, or you hear the voices lower, or you hear the static of the clothing, and it would fucking drive me insane. And we would just listen to these tapes over and over and over and over again to see, hey, is there something in here that 
either we need correction on, we need him to go back the next day and kind of get more information regarding what happened. But on the night of February 27th, 1994, De Leon hears something out of the ordinary. I do remember just hearing noises. I remember hearing a shot. And I'm thinking, what the heck? He's in the precinct. Why would there be any shots in the precinct? Why would there be so much commotion? I'm like, something happened. Something happened. What the fuck happened? A quick step back in time here. According to a confidential official document, just one month prior to Marcia DeLeon hearing this noise inside the precinct, in January of 94, a leak had sprung in the 3-0. A captain had floated the rumor that George Alvarez was wearing a wire, which of course was true. He was wearing a wire for the DA's office. Nobody knows that, but they think Alvarez is a rat. Here's Frank O'Hara. And that kicks off the paranoia. Cops are no different than anybody else in this world. They're human beings, they're normal people. And if you're doing something wrong and you hear that there's an investigation and you say to yourself, well, gee, I've done some criminal acts. For the last three years, uh, I've done a few things that I shouldn't have done. I ripped a couple of drug dealers off. I've taken money. I gave drugs to somebody to sell for me and split the money with them. And now there's an investigation. Holy shit, what do they know about me? I dealt with this guy, I dealt with that guy. Could they be cooperate? If they ever grab him, I know he'll rat me out. The paranoia kicks in. Mike Walsh, no relation to Nannery's Raider Joe Walsh, is one of the Midnight guys. He works with Alvarez. And he's used Alvarez to offload some of the cocaine he's stolen in the past. Last episode, while riding around with Alberto Vargas on New Year's Eve, when Vargas was wired, you heard Mike Walsh complain that if Alvarez gets caught, he's fucked. After hearing the leak that Alvarez is a rat, Mike Walsh begins provoking him. When he sees him, he asks, where's the wire? Now you're talking about a group of people that are becoming paranoid and looking at other people with a jaundiced eye saying, is he a rat? Am I in trouble? You couple that with the paranoia setting in with these people. And now there's an investigation. The pressure cooker, the pressure cooker. What do they know about Am I in trouble? And they're all carrying guns. Alvarez is then asked by Mike Walsh and another officer to strip down in the locker room. Lucky for Alvarez, he'd taken his wire off earlier. Later, his locker gets broken into. He starts drinking on the job to cope. Back to early Sunday morning, February 27th. I remember hearing a shot. George Alvarez is standing at the front desk inside the station house, just after roll call for the midnight tour. Mike Walsh walks by with his new partner, Stephen Morrissey. Morrissey calls Alvarez a rat. Alvarez snaps, and he reaches for his revolver. Morrissey reaches for Alvarez. They were fighting over the gun. The 
pressure cookers pop. Alvarez's gun discharges, and Stephen Morrissey is shot in the foot. But what happens immediately after may have been even more concerning than the shooting. None of the officers present arrest Alvarez for shooting another cop. Instead, supervisors hustle him out of the precinct, and they make up a story. They call the shooting an accident and order Alvarez to go on modified assignment. When those involved in the investigation find out what happened and the cover-up that followed, they know things have spun out of control. It's time to shut this down. Time to shut it down before somebody kills somebody. That triggers an effort by leadership at the NYPD to try and end all of the undercover work in the precinct. Commissioner Bratton. The incident was the catalyst for my pressuring to get this investigation, bring it to closure, that it was, in some respects, almost starting to unravel. To bring some closure to the case, it first needs to be one case, not two, with competing agencies. Bratton calls the DA's office to urge them to put their ill will toward the Mullen Commission aside. Here's Dan Castleman. He basically said, this is crazy. We all have to work together. People are getting shot. And now is time to forget about what happened in the past. And we agreed. And so we finally, as it should have happened earlier, were finally brought together as one investigation. Everybody knew it made sense. It was a relief. So no longer was there this potential appearance of competition. Everybody was now working together. The DA's office joins their investigation with the Mullen Commission and the Southern Districts. They all know that there's more corruption to uncover in the precinct. But after the Alvarez shooting, they can't risk word getting out that George Nova and Alberto Vargas are still wearing their wires. So they all agree to go with what they have and to move quickly. This was a case where we knew we couldn't take one day more to arrest people once we had the evidence to be able to do that. I had gone up to the 30th precinct early in the evening just to take a ride around with the idea that I would go up there at roll call. I had not been into the precinct. I wanted to have a sense of the geography of, of the, the neighborhood. And it was quiet. There was nothing happening, very quiet. It's 11 p.m. on April 14, 1994. And Commissioner Bratton is in a car circling the 30th precinct station house. Later on, we're heading back to basically position ourselves for the arrest being made just before the roll call, when the officers that we wanted to get at the station would be in the station, and simultaneously would be knocking on doors in the various communities around the city in Long Island, arresting other officers. I close the door, let go. One of the first lessons I learned in New York City is that there are no secrets. 
We show up and it was like a three-ring circus with dozens of media at the station, at the precinct. And, uh, you know, so we asked, what the hell is this? And, you know, quite clearly it had leaked. It had been leaked by who knows. It's 11.20 p.m. Commissioner Bratton walks his way past the cameras and through the front doors of the station house. The desire on my part was how do I use this crisis as an opportunity to assert my leadership, assert that there's a, there's a new sheriff in town and that uh, this sheriff is not to be trifled with. As Bratton enters the building, two officers are being arrested inside. Josh Rivera, who works anti-crime with George Nova, and Alfonso Abusador Comprez are told to drop their gun belts. Their shields are taken off their chests and are handed to the commissioner. Bratton then walks out of the station house, holding the two badges in hand. A long investigation into the New York City Police Department has uncovered a network of corruption that extends deep within its ranks. The city's newly appointed police commissioner was at the precinct house when the accused officers had their shields taken away. At the very same time Bratton is walking out of the precinct, the arrests of other officers inside their homes is happening in and around the city. Nine New York City cops ended their shifts and most likely their careers in handcuffs last night, making it a total of 12 charged with protecting or ripping off drug dealers. By the early morning hours of April 15th, along with the original three cooperators, 12 arrests are announced. It's the single biggest police bust in nearly a decade. In New York City tonight, a major scandal for the nation's largest police force. A dozen cops They're so charged far... with selling drugs, stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars, and protecting drug dealers instead of the public. And officials say this is just the beginning of a new crackdown on corrupt cops. Just hours after he'd been there collecting the shields of Comprez and Rivera, Bratton goes back to the 3-0 at 7.30 a.m., to address the officers at morning roll call. His chief of the department, Lou Animone, was there. He made a very impassioned speech. He showed the shield of one of the officers. He said, you know, this, this shield and any others that were tarnished by criminality were never going to be used again in the NYPD. That was the first time anyone had ever done anything like that. Customarily, upon retirement, shields get recycled and, you know, you, you use uh, someone else's shield. But he told them he was uh, ashamed, he was disgusted, and the, uh, the shame and the dishonor that was brought on the 3-0 and the NYPD by these officers was the reason why he would never issue these shields to anyone else ever again. While Bratton speaks to the officers in the 3-0, Michael Horowitz, Dom Zarella, and Frank O'Hara, as well as members of the DA's office, are down at 26 Federal Plaza. After the Alvarez shooting, it was a mad dash to make these arrests. But that doesn't mean the investigation is over. Everybody knows there are still more corrupt cops in the precinct, and they're about to confront the arrested officers with the evidence against them to try to get them to cooperate, too. To help in this effort, 
they've planned a surprise. They've already arrested the drug dealers that these cops have used to sell their stolen cocaine. Horowitz. We had timed the arrest such that shortly after we started arresting the drug dealers, we started arresting the cops. And in the 30th precinct, it doesn't take a lot of time for people to realize, why are these drug dealers being arrested? And then all of a sudden, cops are getting arrested. Something big is happening. The drug dealers are processed and debriefed first, in the very same building, on the same floor, that the cops will be brought to. And they're given a chance to help themselves. We explained to the drug dealers why they were being arrested. Yes, they were being arrested for selling drugs, but what we really wanted to know was about your cops who you're paying off. You might remember the words of Sly Francis all the way back in episode one. Sly was the narcotics detective who was forced to sniff a line of coke at gunpoint. When you bring this bad guy in, he'll tell you, oh, I know this cop out there selling drugs. The minute they can screw your ass, they're going to screw you to the cross. That's his get-out-of-jail-free card right there. What we planned for, and this is how it happened, the cops were being brought up for booking at the same time as we had just finished the drug dealers being interviewed. Dominic Zarella. And we made sure that when the cops were coming in this way, in handcuffs, the drug dealers were coming in this way in handcuffs, and they all crossed paths, right? And so what the cops saw as they were coming upstairs to our offices, the drug dealers they all knew were leaving. They know a drug dealer is going to give up a cop at a moment's notice to protect themselves. And we did that purposefully to let them know that we not only knew what they did, but we knew what the drug dealers were doing and that the drug dealers were probably giving them up. And so we put them in the rooms and we did the same drill we did with Nova and Vargas to explain to them what happened and see if they would cooperate. Officer Mike Walsh is labeled a target of special importance. Frank O'Hara brings him in personally. We wanted to get Michael Walsh to cooperate because he could go further than Alberto Vargas. He could take it another step. O'Hara and Dom Zarella already know from Alberto Vargas that Mike Walsh had stolen a duffel bag with $150,000 in it, along with his former partner, Blake Stroller. We had decided that if they wanted to cooperate, they would have to tell us at least one bad thing that we already knew about to gauge their truthfulness. So I look at him, I said, well, why don't you tell us about the duffel bag of money, the $150,000 duffel bag. And he looks at me and he goes, it wasn't 150,000, it was 147,7. The uniform lieutenant who was sitting in the room almost fell off his chair. Mike Walsh cooperates, along with all but two of the others. We did all of that in the face of being told by everybody, a lot of naysayers at the police department and elsewhere, that the blue wall of silence existed and no one would flip. Commissioner Bratton hopes these latest arrests will send a clear message to any officer thinking of engaging in corrupt activities. We cannot condone. Here we were in New York City, 
at a time of three tabloid newspapers, plus the New York Times, the media center of the world, reporters all over the courthouse and all over the city. Police corruption was not a secret. This is a story everybody's chasing. And I think one of the most remarkable parts of this, even with the tension and the battles between various players here, this story did not break until we made the arrests in April 1994. Nothing broke for that entire period of time. And to me, it's a great example of people coming together ultimately for the right reasons, not taking things in their own hands, no matter how much tension there was, having those disputes internally and recognizing the case had to be able to move forward. The arrested officers were paraded before the press, something that is rarely done in New York City. The police commissioner says there will be no... After the arrests, Commissioner Bratton has the department act on the list of tips the Harlem Initiative's Together pastors gave him after Lent. And as a result, the NYPD makes 536 drug arrests in the neighborhood. Reverend Dr. Scott. I felt edified. I really felt edified. But it was regrettable. It was a sad thing for men in blue to to disgrace their office uh, as they did. I felt sad because I did not want any shame to come upon any police officer. And it was not something that you would rejoice over. But we did feel thankful that situations were being addressed to make things better. Reverend Earl Camp. We all knew it was bad. We all knew it was pervasive. But we, even in our wildest dreams, didn't realize it was that bad. I mean, it'd be one thing for cops just to turn a blind eye, but to actively participate like that was, uh, you know, so disheartening. At the same time, you know, some feeling of like, well, thank God this is out. Next episode, the bad blood between the Mullen Commission and the DA's office spills out into the public. There was sort of this hissing behind me between Bob Morgenthau and Milt Mullen. They were hostile. Joe Walsh reaches the end of his line. I got to get out of here. This is insane. What am I going to I'm going to kill my two best friends. And we meet Mike Walsh's former partner, Blake Stroller. It was something that I I loved. I loved being that dirty motherfucker. The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese Dennis, Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set.
It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.